Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 644 with Michelle Weiss. Michelle has got a great perspective on the future of work and skills and automation and what's going down. So you'll learn one, how to surface your hidden skills. Two, how to keep AI from making you irrelevant. And three, nifty tools for upskilling quickly. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP644. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out our gold nugget email summaries, which give you insights from Michelle and every guest that's gone before her. And a quick email write-up you can read in about three minutes, as well as access to the archive, the vault of all of those. That's the gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Michelle's story. Michelle Weiss was just named to the Thinkers 50 Thinkers to Watch in 2021. She's a senior advisor to Imaginable Futures, a venture of the Omidyar Group and Bright Hive, a data collaboration platform. She is a former chief innovation officer at Strata Education Network and Southern New Hampshire University. She led the higher education practice at Clay Christensen's Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Her most recent book is Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. Her first book with Clay Christensen is Higher Education, Mastery, Modularization, and the Workforce Revolution. Big thanks to Michelle for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Michelle. Michelle, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Great to be with you, Pete. We, as I was reading all about you, one thing that I found, I found, I guess, touching or moving or, or wanted to touch upon for a moment was we've spoken with some people who have worked and written books with Stephen R. Covey, and it, it was just sort of beautiful to hear some memories of that great man and, and teacher who've, who've lived on. And likewise, I wanted to hear a bit from you to start us off about working with Clayton Christensen. What's something folks should know about him and, and who he was when you were collaborating with him? He was one of the most generous people. He would always kind of make you feel like you were the most important person talking to him at that moment. And it's funny, I had a lot of folks who would see him speak at large events and they could sense this sort of folksy tone from him and this kindness. And he would say these beautiful things and people would turn to me and say, is he really that nice? <laughs> you know, is this for show? And it really wasn't. Uh, he was sort of rooted in that way. He was driven by a really intense faith and he, he was a Mormon. And, you know, at his funeral, it was kind of amazing to hear the incredible amount of service he did on the sidelines. And that just sort of that 
feeling of just kindness and generosity that was emanating from him, I think it just showed through every action. And for me, it was uh, life-changing to work with him directly and to write with him and to learn from him and to go very deep into the theories of disruptive innovation and sort of see where he would get frustrated with kind of the misuse of his theories. Mm. Everything I learned about storytelling, I learned from him. Oh, well, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And so, oh yeah, we're going to do a little bit of storytelling, I suppose, here about your insights associated with long life learning. I keep almost saying lifelong learning (laughs) every time. This probably (laughs) happens to you a lot with your collaborators here. So, well, hey, let's go meta for a second. Michelle, tell me, how could we tell this story most effectively? Yes. So the reason why we're getting tripped up on long life learning, right, is we're so much more familiar with this concept of lifelong learning that we should be constantly learning how to learn throughout our lives. What I tried to do in this book was to move us into action. I was just noticing a lot of inertia around this concept because we know we need to reskill throughout our longer, more turbulent work lives. But where is the actual infrastructure to sort of take these on and off ramps in and out of learning and work or do both at the same time and not have it feel so, so painful. And so for me, this mental shift comes through this concept of a longer, longer life. Just if we extend our lifespans, which we know since 1840, we've been tacking on three months of life to every single year since 1840. So our lifespans are just definitely extending, but so are our work lives. When you look at early baby boomers and how long they're staying in the workforce and how many job changes they go through by the time they retire, it just helps us kind of snap us into attention and to say, we have to start building a better functioning ecosystem in which we can access the education and training we need in order to thrive in the labor market. Okay. And that thesis seems to just make sense as a natural implication of living longer and such. So could you maybe share with us something that's surprising or or counterintuitive as a discovery that you've made along the way as, as you're putting this together? Yeah. So I have been doing a lot of research on the future of work. And what I noticed in a lot of the literature and the analyses out there by chief economists and as they're trying to sort of forecast all the different kinds of ways in which jobs are going to become obsolete or this industry will become decimated by these technologies, what I realized was this kind of intense focus on the it or the things or the jobs or the tasks and numbers. And so what I realized is if we actually kind of move away from thinking about the future of work to the future of workers and all of us having to somehow kind of move through this learn, earn, learn, earn cycle. To me, it kind of helped surface some of the most intractable issues and barriers that we need to solve for today. So what my book does is it really actually elevates the voices of people who only have a high school degree, who are constantly being overlooked for work they could actually perform and noticing where the barriers kind of coalesce. So These concepts that I come up with around better career navigation or better wraparound support services or more targeted educational pathways or more integrated earning and learning and more fair and transparent skills-based hiring practices, those aren't just coming from me thinking what we need to do. It's really kind of trying to gather all this qualitative data 
We did over a hundred hour long in-depth interviews with folks to sort of suss out where do people keep kind of bumping up against pain points? And if we design this future system better, then all of us are going to actually end up benefiting. It's the same idea of the curb cuts that we did when we kind of created the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's when you're cutting into the curb and you're making a sloping curve, you're not only helping folks who are disabled who need to use a wheelchair, but you're helping mothers pushing strollers or you know, FedEx delivery uh, folks with their dollies. You're helping runners, cyclists, skateboarders. It's this idea of universal design. But when we want to target our focus, because it just seems like this huge, expansive challenge, we focus on the on the people, the future of workers. Lovely. Okay. Well, so then as, as we are, we got a lot of workers listening right now. Yeah. Can you sort of frame things up for us a little bit in terms of, so you make it a point that the the old model of, hey, there's education, then there's work, then there's retirement, isn't what we should be relying upon going forward. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. So just the notion, right, that we could have one or a handful of jobs and, and retire in comfort, that's already become sort of a quaint notion. And when you look at the amount of job changes that people are experiencing by the time they retire, folks are already going through on average 12 job changes by the time they retire. And so as we think about that longer, more turbulent work life that is shaped by rapid advancements in technology, we can only extrapolate from there, wow, we may have to somehow entertain 20 or 30 job changes by the time we retire. And so how in the world are we going to navigate that when one is just so difficult to navigate? Yeah, well, lay it on us. How should we navigate these optimally? Yeah, so I think the the perfect illustration of what's not working today, right, is when we look at what the pandemic has has shown us, which is when retail and hospitality were just completely decimated as as industries, we had no way for people who were in those, you know, customer service roles or those frontline worker roles to actually transfer their skills from retail or from hospitality into something totally different, but to identify their kind of transferable skills. And I think all of us, we believe that we have really important kinds of skills, those transferable skills that can help us port from port our assets from one specific area to another. But in general, like when you think about the job market, we think about it in such a linear format, right? We kind of, if we start off in retail or if we start off in office admin, when we think about advancement, we think within that line of work, right? It's harder for us to sort of think about moving beyond that industry that we started in. And the reason why we feel that way is because that's what employers tell us, right? The employers want to see exact work experience in hospitality to move you up to a manager role. We don't have ways of validating other kinds of experiences. So one of the key solutions for us that, that are exciting to kind of for us to anticipate, and, and we already see these different kinds of AI-powered platforms, what they're doing is they're helping us surface maybe some of our hidden skills, the skills that aren't necessarily recognized by a formal credential, like a degree or a certificate or a certification. And what they're doing is, you know, like as we're typing in, I used to be a barista, that signal of the barista helps 
the the platform actually surfaced. Oh, did you know that folks who were baristas, they have these specific competencies and skills. So there are ways in which these platforms can not only help us surface our own skills, but then help us envision pathways where we might actually be 75% of the way there towards something in human resources or 85% of the way there towards something in advertising and marketing. We just didn't know it. We couldn't envision it for ourselves. So these, these kinds of tech-enabled platforms are interesting kinds of seeds of innovation to look at that might help us not only kind of validate our own skills, whether we've acquired them through taking care of our own families or through work experience, and also make sure that we can also understand the kinds of gaps we might have to fill in order to move into these other opportunities. Well, it's really interesting when you mentioned that if you're a barista, you could very well have under the surface, like all of these skills that you're applying there. And that reminds me of of a previous guest we had, uh, Todd Rose, talking about dark horses and how what might seem like completely different skills are actually, if if you zoom way in, Uh, super similar in terms of, oh, actually, well, you're using your hands to shape these things into other things so that they fit. Those those Mm -hmm. are similar, you know, much like, oh, you're optimizing a a manufacturing production schedule is sort of like solving a puzzle that over in in the realm of math or physics or or, or something that who would have known, you know, those, those are quite common. So, or quite complementary. So, yeah. Well, these platforms you speak of, how do we get our hands on one? So can I go to some website right now and it's going to tell me all my you know, hidden skills? So that's one of the challenges. There is uh, like a free one off of MZ called Skills Match where you can start to surface and, and, and kind of build a resume using these technologies. But this is one of the challenges and this is what I'm trying to point out in my book is that there are hundreds of thousands of innovations and solutions out there. The problem is for any normal person to understand where to go when we're like, if, if we're suddenly laid off, we don't know who to call, where to go, who to talk to. All of these, there's, there's so many of these solutions out there, but they're not knit together in a way that's easily understandable and navigable for any person, right? We just, we need to it's not that we need a whole slew of new innovations. We need these things to become just more accessible so we can understand and comprehend how to navigate this, who to go to for, how do I know that when I pick this learning experience, a future employer is going to validate it and and understand what it means and how do I know precisely which skills I need to acquire and which school actually offers those like three competencies? I don't need a degree, maybe. Maybe I already have a degree. I don't want to go back to school full time. How do I get just what I need in order to, to move on? And that's, that's one of the challenges. But there's a bunch of these groups like Sky High, Future Fit. And what they're doing right now is they're more B2B. They're more working with enterprises and trying to help them get a better understanding of who's in their workforce. Because a lot of companies, and it's very odd to think about it this way, but most companies don't actually know what their people can do. Yeah, They know job titles, they know names. They don't have a real granular sense of the skill sets, the competencies, all those hidden talents that, that folks have. So that's where these innovations are starting is trying to help employers be less wasteful, not always recruit externally, but look at the talent that they have right in front of them and think, maybe I could actually take 30% of these folks and build their skills in X, Y, or Z to meet our strategic goals for the future. 
Yeah, that's exciting. And indeed, it just seems like a huge opportunity that's just waiting to be plucked. I mean, a great manager would know a lot of what their team is capable of. Mm-hmm. Yet, how is that information, you know, captured, collected, and and transmitted elsewhere? And, and what are the incentives for doing so? You're like Michelle's a rock star; she's working for me to, to get your hands off. <laughs> you know, I I don't want you to stagger and to, uh, do a completely different function. That is a real challenge within yeah. within the companies. Yeah, this kind of like zero sum game of, oh, if you take my person, you're hurting me versus helping the company, right? It's hard to get out of that mindset. Totally. Unless you had sort of like a widespread culture and reciprocity and such so that you say, hey, you know what? There's there's give and take. I might lose Michelle for a couple of months, but I'm going to get Phil, who's who's amazing and fills another role that we really need. So if there's that that trust there, that, that can be handy. But well, now you just got me dreaming big, Michelle. And I remember I once... I don't know if I'll ever do this or not, but or maybe someone... I hope someone's doing this, but when you talked about the high school folks who who did not have diplomas and yet are capable of doing so much, but it's hard for them to sort of prove that. I, I kind of imagine just like forming this whole business where we just sort of like <laughs> assess the crap out of people, you know, in, in terms of like all of these batteries of things. Because I come from strategy consulting and we did case interviews and I found that that was a pretty excellent means of identifying if some folks have a particular set of skills. Mm-hmm. And so that that's one kind of a test for one set of skills. Likewise, there's many tests for many other skills. Wouldn't it be cool if folks could go to some sort of a facility for a week or something and, and get the rundown on, on all their skills in a language that firms could could read and understand and then open up opportunity for people as well as savings for the companies. It, it seems like someone should have invented that. Maybe it needs to be me or maybe that's in the works. <laughs> but Michelle, give us your take on to what extent does that exist, the, a means of identifying and appreciating hidden skills so the companies can save money and, and not have to hire the Harvard grad and, and professionals who don't have the degree can see some cool opportunities. Yeah. So what you're what you're identifying, right, when you're talking about seeing how someone responds to a case study is you're testing their problem solving capabilities, right? right? You're trying to see like what kind of systems thinking, critical thinking capabilities do they have? I was just talking to a colleague who used to work at Arthur Anderson and they had this very open question format where they would do the same things where they'd be trying to suss out someone's sense of initiative, right? And collaboration and these more fuzzy things, but trying to see how they talk about this in the problem, in the context of solving a problem. The good news is that there are these innovators who are working on new kinds of ways of assessing curiosity, problem solving, all these really important kinds of skills that we know are going to be deeply valuable in the future of work, right? Because as we think about the rapid advancements of AI and how intelligent these AI are, where AI is starting, it's not only able to read, drive, see, but it's also able to write poetry. It can paint Picassos, right? It's getting scary how far these technologies are sort of infiltrating our lives. So what is our human advantage, right? What is our competitive advantage when we when we compare ourselves to these machines who can usually do some of this work far more flawlessly than we can? And it comes in these human skills. So places like Embellis and Immersion and these different groups are trying to figure out ways to test out someone's problem-solving capabilities where you're on a computer and you're thrust into this setting where you're in this natural environment in the mountains and something's dead. 
in front of you, right? And you Mm -hmm. need to kind of poke it and look at it, sort of see what is going on. And you're trying to figure out what happened. And so on the back end, you have psychometricians kind of figuring out what all those clicks mean, right? What are you doing when you're making, you know, you're putting these two data sets together? You know, there's really interesting ways in which groups are trying to democratize the process and say, we're looking for the best problem solvers in the world. If you can kind of solve this problem, this is really exciting. And it, and it makes me think of what you were talking about with Todd Rose's concept of that, of the dark horse. And one of the most valuable assets that we will bring to the table is our ability to take concepts from seemingly unrelated domains and make them make sense in the context of the problem we're trying to solve. So Inocentive, as an example, this was a platform that was created partly because at Eli Lilly, these chemists and scientists couldn't figure out a problem. So they posted it online and they found out that a lawyer could actually solve the problem using his sort of different kinds of contextual expertise to help them figure out a way forward. Or when they tried to figure out how to create more efficient ways of solving for oil spills in oceans. It was actually a pastry chef who talked about the process of making chocolate mousse and how that might actually help us think through how you remove oil from water. And this is all, I'm totally stealing this from from David Epstein's book, Range, but it's this idea of how are we going to cultivate not only problem solvers, but people who can display that sense of range And it doesn't always come from a four-year college degree. We don't always get that real intensive interdisciplinary learning that we probably should. And for me, you know, for the next steps for higher education, that is a real opportunity for them to kind of break down silos across disciplines and departments. But as we think about those skills that are going to make us most valuable, it's going to be those kind of hidden ways of thinking about problems. So let, let's hit that for a minute there. So AI can do a lot. And it's right now we're, we're very much valuing humans being able to draw from different disciplines and putting them together. So what are the fundamental kind of principles or distinctions that like we think human brains are going to be able to do this better than machines even 20 years from now? What are those things? It's not playing chess or Jeopardy. No. But, but what is it? <laughs> I think probably the most helpful way of thinking about it was when I talked to an executive from Apple who he actually went to Stanford for a mechanical engineering degree, but as part of his gen ed curriculum, he took a a class on ethics. And he mentioned that that class is probably one of the most valuable classes he had while he was an undergraduate because when they're producing technology, new technologies, new products, The thing they have to think about is, he called it sort of volume impact repercussions, where they have to think of second, third order effects of what they're building, because in an instant, millions of people are going to be leveraging whatever it is that they're producing. And so they really have to kind of anticipate forward and think, what are all the ways in which this can go wrong, right? And if we think about where we are today with social media, right? We didn't do enough of that. We didn't extrapolate enough far forward. And when you hear the the co-founders of of a bunch of these different social media companies, you hear them say, I didn't think that this is the way that it was going to be used. But this this is what humans do bring to the table when we sort of bring ethics and judgment and values and try to think forward. This also has implications on the kinds of people you bring around the table 
to do that sort of analysis has to be a diverse group. It cannot just be young white male undergrads kind of thinking about this problem. It has to be a diverse group of folks kind of thinking about those those volume impact repercussions. So I think those real skills in exercising judgment are going to be critical that we can't rely on the AI to do. Okay, so so second, third order things. And, and I guess that makes sense to me in terms of like, I guess as I think about things that are like playing chess or Jeopardy or even like composing or painting, it's sort of like they're all kind of bounded in a way mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, find the right answer or the right move or mm-hmm. the apply a, a principle of color or sound. Right. They're finite. Yeah. Versus saying, speculating as to what social media and how it will impact us with widespread adoption. That does seem harder to stick yeah. inside code. <laughs> Anything else that we humans do great? So a couple of years ago, Amazon had tried to leverage AI to diversify their their hiring processes. And they thought maybe AI could do a better job than humans. And so they kind of built out this new system. The AI started kind of going through the diverse set of applications. And then they it was the humans kind of watching and seeing the output to sort of identify, huh, kind of strange that so many of these folks are named Jared, right? Or a lot of them played lacrosse. And it's partly, you know, they started to realize, oh my gosh, we've trained the AI on flawed data. They kind of looked at their existing talent pool. They tried to sort of say, these are the senior leaders at our company that do great work. But what they did was they trained the AI to search for people that looked and sounded exactly like their existing leadership, right? And that that is not the that is not a way that you diversify your talent pool. And so it took humans to kind of notice and sort of exercise some judgment to say, wait, something's wrong, interrogate it, look deeply, look into the data and sort of say, oh, okay, we've got a problem here. Because the AI will only just kind of repeatedly get smarter and smarter with the data that it is trained on. And we see this also happening, unfortunately, in the legal system where we're developing sentencing structures based on deeply inequitable past data of how we've punished people. So we need these kind of deep thinking humans for the future who have enough domain expertise to be able to question the AI because we cannot just let it the crazy thing like, is that right, most companies... Get some more Jareds in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever you say, robot. <laughs> yeah, most companies like don't know if they can trust their AI right now. I have a statistic in the book where they are not comfortable auditing the sort of their existing AI. They're not comfortable auditing it. Yeah, so this is from an Accenture study. But basically, fewer than a third of companies surveyed have a high degree of confidence in the fairness and auditability of their AI systems and less than half have similar confidence in the safety of those systems. So Mm -hmm. we're so reliant on these technologies and yet we don't fully trust the algorithms that undergird them. Well, I mean, I buy that. Even in a very, very easy example, I I think about like machine generated transcription, which um, (laughs) I mean, that's existed for 20, 30, 40 years. And yet it's still... It's still not great. I mean, I don't know. If you have 98% accuracy, okay, that sounds really impressive, but that's really still like three errors every minute. And so in this 
conversation. We'd have a hundred or two. And so I wouldn't call that good. And so anyway, I, I just find that, I don't know, not to be grouchy, but I'm a little skeptical myself in terms of maybe eventually it will be awesome. But right now I'm, I'm not super impressed. And maybe I just haven't been looking at the right places to blow me away. No, what you are pointing out is what this MIT economist named Daron Asimoglu calls so-so automation. Yeah. So like when we think about just the rise of ATMs in the last few decades, what's interesting about an ATM is that it is far better than a so-so technology because it actually completely made obsolete the role of kind of a person counting money because it could do it really well, yeah. right? And we don't actually have a lot of technologies that we're building today. The transcription one is is a perfect example or the robots that we use in warehouses where we have to depend on people as pick and packers to be able to sort of get the thing out of the robot's sort of treasure trove and put it into a box, right? Mm -hmm. So we're creating technologies that are just so-so. They're not great enough to completely obviate a certain task. And as a result, we're not creating enough forms of truly creative labor, right? Because when ATMs kind of took over, what was fascinating to see is the sort of burgeoning of the services industry in banking, right? It wasn't that people just became useless. It's that they actually transferred their skills into different domains. Here, what we're having is a lot of kind of unfulfilling uh, what researchers call ghost work. It's this kind of interstitial stuff that we have to do on the back end, even when we're training AI you have tons of people, these mechanical Turkers who are, you know, working for cents on the dollar, who are identifying all the photos that are coming up from the AI to say, that's a face, that's mm -hmm. the same face as that one. That's a body part. Ooh, that's not a body that's part a we want to show. That's not a cat. Right? <laughs> exactly. And not a hot dog, hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> you watch Silicon Valley. <laughs> oh. But we have a lot of terrible work that's emerging because of that not great enough technology right now we're in this we're in this awkward phase where we're not creating enough forms of creative labor well, well michelle these are a lot of interesting ideas i'd love it if we could sort of zoom in here now for for the professional maybe in their 30s or 40s they got a lot of work left in their career before retirement likely so what's our game plan in terms of of learning the right stuff effectively and well and keeping our, our careers uh, moving on a great trajectory? Yeah. So I think one way forward is, unfortunately for us as job seekers, a lot of the burden rests on us and a lot of the financial risk also rests on us to make these decisions on our own. But moving into the future, what we really need to see and what I think will signify the kind of company that we want to work for are the ones who stop this kind of disinvestment in training their existing workforce and start to realize I have all this talent within, how do I help them, you know, acquire the skills they need to be successful? And I think the most powerful indicator of a company that is truly invested in us as job seekers are the ones that tell us, you don't have to do this on your own. We're not going to just dangle tuition assistance or tuition reimbursement dollars and say, hey, we're glad that you would like to advance your education. Go do it on your own time on top of everything else you've got going on in your lives. The sort of the most competitive forward thinking companies are going to realize that the workplace is really the classroom of the future. 
And I'm not talking about on-the-job compliance training, risk mitigation work, like sexual harassment training. I am talking about like real new skills building activities. So it's critical that the company not only identifies really transparent internal mobility pathways for you and for us, but it also has to be very explicit about carving out time in the flow of the workday for you to acquire those skills because it's not fair for us to have to somehow squeeze it in on top of, you know, stitching together multiple part-time jobs or all our caregiving activities. It's too hard to just kind of stack that on top of everything else. So the, I think the, the things that we need to look out for the future are the companies that are truly invested in our reskilling and upskilling who kind of figure out ways to make that learning bite size or, you know, for an hour a day or an hour a week where we can be doing this in the flow of work. And also for educational institutions and providers to be able to modularize their learning in ways that's more accessible where we're not always bending to the sort of linear structure of the college or the university, but that it's much more flexible and easily consumable. Well, and that's a beautiful world that uh, I'd love for us to to live in. And I guess part of why this podcast exists is that we're not there. Mm -hmm. And it is a little bit of a do-it-yourself proposition for a lot of folks these days. And fair or not, uh, pleasant or not, uh, stressful. (laughs) So let's say, let's talk to the professional who's in an environment that's not so enlightened (laughs) with regard to to offering some great learning opportunity. And let's say even, hey, they're a little mercenary. They're they're just going to go take it. You know, even in, I'm just going to, at 11 a.m., when there's no other meeting on the calendar, I'm just going to go do me some learning. What are the, some of the top resources you'd recommend to them? I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of, of LinkedIn learning myself, but what else would you say in terms of, all right, you got an hour, you're going to do some learning. What are some of your favorite places to go? So one that I talk about in the book is called Gleek, G-L-E-A-C. And what they do is they make these kind of mobile-friendly learning apps where they just take minutes and they have folks, for instance, who are customer service or retail folks in Prada stores, as an example, where they're building up their reflection and communication of of these kind of human skills that they're developing, where they're exercising their judgment. And they're these bite-sized learning applications that a worker can kind of leverage while they're working. Another one would be immersion that I'm kind of really interested in. So we tend to think of executive coaching as reserved for people, kind of mid-level managers and up. What immersion enables us to do is practice those really important human skills in a low stakes environment. So giving feedback, receiving feedback, these really critical skills for success in the workforce, but we generally only practice them in a high stakes environment when we actually have to give someone really tough feedback or when we're receiving it from our bosses. And generally, I know whenever (laughs) I do this, I leave the conversation sort of thinking about all the different ways in which I could have done it better. And this environment actually has avatars in front of you and the quality of the imagery is good enough uh, where you can notice different people's nonverbal cues and you can hear their voices change. And so you have to be responsive in that moment. And it's actually this kind of interesting AI powered platform that's puppeteered by one human also in the background where the human can play the role of like six or seven different people with different voices and different characteristics. And so it gives you that chance to practice 
you know, negotiation, all these different kinds of skills that we need to, we need to get better at because the fascinating thing just in general with human skills is even though we're human, we're not very sophisticated at them. We actually have to practice these skills. And just because we take a LinkedIn learning class on empathy, we're not somehow going to become more emotionally intelligent just from taking that one class, right? We have to figure out ways to practice these. So those are the kinds of uh, innovations that I'm excited about. All right. Thank you. Well, then tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. One thing that might be important for job seekers to know about is the existence of different kinds of alternative learning providers kind of outside the traditional realm of colleges and universities. I think most people have heard of these things called coding boot camps, right? Where you go and you get pretty savvy in web development or front-end development and you do this for six to 12 weeks, you pay $20,000 out of pocket and then maybe you get this great job. Those have typically kind of been more geared to folks who already have a degree, sort of more affluent, who can actually afford to pay out of pocket. But there are these interesting other set of providers that I call on-ramps where they do this kind of really important human skills building work, but they also help learners get skills in healthcare, advanced manufacturing, cybersecurity, data science, enough to get hired by we these amazing stories of, you know, a U.S. Postal Service worker becoming a quality assurance engineer for Facebook, you know, through this data science immersive program. And what they're doing is that they are actually stitching together that kind of career navigation with a very precise educational pathway with a direct connection to an employer. And so there are these kinds of opportunities available. It's a matter of trying to Right. Again, it's back to us as the individual job seekers. The burden is on us to kind of find some of these. But really interesting example of another one is one called Climb Hire. We know that Salesforce administrators are a job that are in demand, that are in high demand. And so what they're doing is they're building these skills, but they're also embedding social capital building into the learning process where they're helping folks who may not have the best professional networks, learn how important it is to build relationships, build professional networks. And when a person actually gets a job at a company as a Salesforce administrator, the onus is on them to refer and bring someone else into the company from Climb Hire. Because the CEO realized from LinkedIn data as an example that people are nine times more likely to get a job through a referral. So they're helping job seekers and learners really build this skill, because it is something that you kind of have to learn how to do unless you're sort of born into an incredible network. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? So you heard me talk about David Epstein, who wrote mm-hmm. Range, and he talks about deep learning, but he says the most effective learning looks inefficient. It looks like falling behind. And I love this quote just because I think when we think about all the ways in which we are kind of channeled and incentivized to achieve. We're always measuring through this kind of testing that is actually not measuring what matters. And if we were actually to sort of really understand what kind of learners and that kind of deep learning in folks, it would actually look like failing. And I think that's, I don't know, that's important for us to know. And how about a favorite book? Probably Beloved by Toni Morrison. 
And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I have one of those keyboards that are split into two and kind of at an angle. Oh, me too. Uh, I have some tendonitis, so. <laughs> That's good. I've got the Freestyle 2 from Kinesis. That's what I have. But yours, you got the tense going. I, I didn't get the tense. I just got the split. Because I've got, yeah. I guess, some wider shoulders. And so I always found that I was, you know, <laughs> yeah. So I, I like being able to just like stretch out and be me, you know, without having yeah. to, you know, crunch them in. I have the same exact one, the freestyle too. Underneath, you can flip out the thingies that... Um, oh, that's right. I never bought But you those. know what I realized is I think I pressed the delete button so much that I actually really kind of hurt my mm. wrist <laughs> and needed to reshift my my posture. Well, I think that there's something beautiful in hiding in that. Perhaps it's revision, commitment to yes. excellence, iterating, learning, meta stuff there. Yep. Nothing you write is golden. Yeah. Yep. Not at first, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and how about a favorite habit? Oh, uh, walking. And is there a particular nugget you share that you're kind of known for? People quote back to you a lot. Oh, I think maybe you because I learned this from Clayton Christensen, one of the most powerful parts of the theories is when you see something that looks less than our immediate kind of reflex is to sort of scorn or disparage it or to dismiss it as oh, it's not an important innovation to to pay attention to. But Clay always said, you know, it could be just good enough, right? And that is something that I try to convey to folks. It's when we have that very human reflex when we perceive newness as danger, that might be actually the precise time where we need to take a beat mm -hmm. and look at the thing more carefully. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'm always available through Twitter and LinkedIn at RW Michelle, or I have a website called riseanddesign.io. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think in general, it's still this concept of collaboration. I think we generally just because of the way we're trained from K-12 on through college, it's so often kind of this notion that things are a zero-sum game where if you're winning, I'm losing. But in this concept of kind of long life learning, there's no winning this. And so how do we actually change our behavior? And instead of always sort of trying to be the leader, how do we actually make sure we're collaborating in, in truly distinctive ways? I think that's something that, that I think about a lot. It's a hard behavior to turn to, given the way that we're trained. Well, Michelle, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck in your long life learning. Thank you. You too. I really loved how Michelle shared a lot of platforms and tools and resources and things that I had just never heard of before. And she is plugged in with the cool people doing the cool things. So like Mersion, for example, I went to their website. That's spelled M-U-R-S-I-O-N, Mersion.com, doing this cool virtual reality stuff. I totally want to play with it. I'd probably have someone from them over to talk with us about the implications of that stuff. So so much good stuff. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links as we reference are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP644. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links as well as the perfect episode for your situation. 
You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.